0: Really fast again, all you folks that sent me things for my for Cinco de Stevo to celebrate the worldwide celebration that it is and all the trumpet playing. I just want to thank you very much. It, it is a, a wonderful thing to read and you make make me laugh, all of you, and I appreciate it very much. All right. Here we go. March the 6th. 2018 lecture discussion number 22 on the book of Joel, which, of course, is the prophet, prophecy of Joel. And we've been shuffling along an old man shuffle. I, I know how that works now very well, being the aged dotage person that I am now. But we've been shuffling along through the contents of the book of Joel now for 22 weeks. That's a lot. And so far, we've barely managed to get the pertinent materials, the prominent pieces, accumulated and shared for inspection. By we, of course, I mean me. I'm still picking up pieces in Joel. And if I had to select those verses of Joel that are the most vital, then naturally I would select the three beholds. Let me put them up here for you. Yes, I changed the ink in the incredible Japanese marker thingy, so we can all read it this week. That's not easy to do. Usually I go in the back uh, uh, with pterithythi uh, and I pull it apart and she runs away because the ink flies everywhere, as it did today. But I'm getting better at it. Okay, I'm not. Joel 2.19, Joel one, Joel 3.7, those are the beholds. And so every time you find a behold, you know that it's going to be amazing. And so obviously we'd have to say those are extraordinarily significant. So is Joel 2.12, Joel 2.27, 2.30, of course 2.32, which is probably the most famous, Joel 3.3 and Joel 3.15. Those are the ones that if I had to say, please get a hold of those at least, um, there they would be. And of these, if I'm forced to reduce to one verse, that would be Joel um, 3.1. I would look really careful at 3.7, but 3.1 would be probably where I go. And I know that Joel 3.7 is amazing. Okay, I changed my mind. I'm going to go to 3-7. I'll do 3-1 another time. So if I'm forced, for behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Now you hear that word in there that I love, don't you? Time. Behold in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Is that three seven or three one? Three one. Okay, I had it right the first time. Why did I why did I tell myself that it was three seven? And believe it. Because yesterday was my birthday. This is the beginning of the end. You'll remember back. You'll say, Okay, that was the day he finally began to demonstrate. Is is that relentless march uh, to uh, to incontinence? <laughs> okay, <laughs> where did that come from? I, I need I need to. Mm. How do I know about that? Joel is prophecy and foremost God is telling Israel of future certainties that will occur. They will occur at a time that is to come. A time that just happens to be thousands of years ahead of where Joel was. And Joel demonstrates the authority now by saying this that God has over time. He declares it. He says it is cemented truth. It will happen. It cannot not happen. That brings a lot of implications and ramifications, consequences that we'll have to discuss. Now, with that said, Joel 2.32 is the great promise of Jesus Christ, right? Whosoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ, the, who, I'm sorry, I didn't say it badly. Whosoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, shall be saved. That's Romans 10.13, that's Acts 2.21. One of the most powerful verses ever written. If not thee. Joel two twelve thirteen. Now therefore says the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He's describing himself. Joel 2.27, I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. That'll get me kicked off of YouTube right there. And what can you say when you read those except to be astonished at the tenets that only God Himself could state? Let's go back to this return to the Lord your God. Return to Him. We're all going to return to Him. There is no other option. We return to Him. We all shall return. And He says, when you return to Me, come mourning for your sins. Matthew 5, 4. That's the Beatitudes. It says, mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. That means mourning for sin. We are to come back mourning for our sins and humbly return to our Creator. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, People misinterpret that. They think that's mourning for death. It's very common to hear that. We're not to be like the professional Jewish mourners of death in Scripture. They're the ones that are hired to weep over the dead. Now, why are they hired to weep over the dead? They're those who declare death to be victorious, to be sovereign, to be permanent. Jesus Christ groaned at those who announced the primacy of physical death. It made him groan. We're not to be like them. We who know who Christ truly is should not lift up death as the extinguishing, the supreme extinguishing force or as a supreme extinguishing force. It's not. To do so makes Christ weep. Moan. That's what he did at the tomb of Lazarus, right? The people who who lift death up as the ultimate annihilation force, that's the evolutionists, the atheists, and the monists. That's what they do. And they like doing it. Ask why. They never stop doing it. The Christians, the church should know the due place for death, physical death. It's a temporal aspect. Physical death ends nothing. Death does not affect the continuity of the mind, the soul, spirit. It's merely uh, truncates, attenuates, temporarily suspends the mechanical operation of the body. That's all death does. Therefore, when God uses the term mourning, he cannot be. It is not mourning for death. It's never mourning for death. It can't be. I hope you see the inconsistency. He knows of all people, of all beings, he knows what death truly is. He is not. He's not mourning for physical death. It's referencing sin. We're to lament our sin, our unbelief, our depravity. Matthew 6, 8 through 14. We're supposed to profess our fragility, confess our failures, and forgive others. Why do we forgive others? He tells you, forgive others. If you don't forgive others, you're a mess. That's in the Bible. Why should you forgive others? See, we have to have this understanding of our own sinful predisposition, our inclination. We have to know that we are this way. That's why we're supposed to go to church. He says, do not forsake the assembly. Why do you go to church? Why would you want to go to church? Have you seen the people in the churches? I and mean, they're awful. The old joke, don't get in front of a, don't get, don't get before a pastor in a ten dollar bill. He'll run you over, knock you over, grab that money. That's a joke because it's not a joke. The church is desperate to take your money. It's, it's a sickness now. So people say, why should I go to church and be next to all those awful people? Because you're one of the awful people. And you're supposed to go to demonstrate that you're just like the rest. And if you won't go because they're awful, what are you saying about yourself? You're not awful. Now you're in trouble. You do not have a knowledge of your depravity. And he wants you to come humbly mourning for your own sin. Not pointing out the sins of somebody else. And if you don't have that understanding, you're in the ditch. So, the understanding, the comprehension of our own sinfulness, crucial. And it's demonstrated by our willingness to be merciful to others. We need mercy. If you think you don't, you're going to be one of those who gives no mercy understand again, all of us shall return to him and all of that is to just barely touch upon the treasures that's in the book of Joel they're all vital they're essential Joel subjects, but I chose joel three one for behold in those days the future days, and at that time i I chose that of all of these because I think it is so absolutely astonishing this is happening. What he's talking about, Joel, is for behold, in those days, the days that he's talking about are the tribulational that's the tribulational time, but more specifically it's the seventy five day interval. It is the time between the end of the tribulation, which is the seven years, it's got a midpoint to divide in I right here I have a seventy five day interval, and then I have a thousand year millennial reign. So he's talking about this 75-day interval. That's where there's the judgment of the Gentiles. That's the separating of the sheep and the goats. That's Matthew 25, 31 through 46. That's the bringing back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the aftermath, if you will, of the tribulation. In those days and at that time. When God ever says the word time, that should make you just go, Wow. He's saying the word time. Why is he saying the word time? What's so important about that day, that time? And as you know, I'm routinely, I'm, I'm fixated on. I don't know what to say. I have been looking at time for a long time. Let the record show. No one laughed. One person barely smiled, and he is now my favorite. But you know what's happening to me. I can't stop it. I'm routinely drawn into watching Hollywood's shallow, feeble, thoughtless presentations on time. I know, I hope I know. I'm going to try to propose to you that I know. I'm going to try to convince you that I do know what time is and why time. Maybe today. But I can't help but notice that you're that I'm competing with the media, the entertainment media. And they have these uh, uh, ostensibly endless parade of time traveling scenarios. They just this they're, right now. There just uh, there must be 15 of them on, on, on popular media. They just won't stop. And I know that's not an accident. I, I know the message that they have, that they're sending with these countless shows, and I know it's impacting our young people. And it bothers me. There's a hidden system here, a hidden agenda. And so I torture myself, and I know it's indefensible. I'm without excuse. And why do I do it? Why do I insist on watching all of these things, hoping for something new and different and thoughtful, which never happens? It doesn't happen. I said this earlier. And then I have to insert the premises into the lectures. I have to. It's a disease. I'm doing it again today. And what's causing me to do it? I'm thinking it might be the after effects of my numerous self-inflicted concussive experiences. That's a possibility. But it's really probably therapeutic value to me. It gets, gets me just writing down what I'm going to say to these folks makes me feel better. I'm happy. I succumb to it. And who knows? It's a great mystery why they get to me or it's not. I'm weird. So once again, here, I'm going to try to do it again. It's a compulsion. It prevails. And the most recent thing that I watched while I was in a concussive state and shouldn't have been watching it—that's true, I was. The most recent one has a time traveler. Oh gosh, just just to came say the words without being miserable. And this particular time time traveler is the grandson of two supposed scientists, and the scientists are threatened in the in the context of the. Performance, I guess, are threatened with impending death by these evil protagonist aliens. Already I'm vomiting watching this. I mean, I just can't deal with it. But I know that there, this agenda is very popular among the church people. We go to these. Number one movie in the world right now is this. And all of what I just said is complete nonsense while back, I did Fermi's Paradox. It's not necessarily Fermi, um, Enrico Fermi. It's not necessarily a paradox, but it has been rendered into a paradox. Fermi raised the question, there is overwhelming evidence without dispute, without controversy. The evidence is incredible that the earth is absolutely alone. It's called the rare earth position. There is nothing like Earth. What he's saying is, is we have all of this equipment and we are searching for. Now, he died in 19, maybe 55, 60, somewhere in there. So recent scientific thinking. So we have all this equipment. We are searching for what? Billions of dollars searching the SETI program, searching for alien life. We found nothing. Zero. Apparently, Hollywood doesn't know this. Well, they do probably know it, but it doesn't matter to them. They have something they're wishing to accomplish with the youth. There's this fine-tuning that is the that the earth has for life. There is no other fine-tuning that has been discovered anywhere with all the countless experimentation and all the observation and all the broadcasting and all the... Uh, the re- receptive technologies. They have all of these reasons that there, that we haven't found any aliens, as you should know. Thought I was going to say, by the way, didn't you? Do you notice the people that do say those three words that are unspeakable, Speakable? They can't. That is ridiculously repetitive. I count them. I listen to these people and I count all the times they say the unsayable and mock them for it. I want to write them a letter and say, Hey, I counted. In 15 minutes, you said the unsayable over 50 times. They do. Listen, it's fantastic. It's taken me a long time to break the habit, hasn't it? You should be proud of me. Okay. But the rare, the, earth, the fine-tuning of the earth is unbelievable. There is no, it's, The mathematics of the fine-tuning are as ridiculous. The possibility that there is life somewhere else is so remote as to be indefensible in the sense that you cannot defend that there is. They have to go to multi-universes. They've got to try everything. But every time you see an alien, what's he look like? He breathes air, he eats food, he wears clothes, he, oh, he's depicted as human. How come we don't have some life form that is completely non-human? We don't. It's always human. We have to have human actors portray the alien. Sometimes they make him look like an overstuffed teddy bear, but he still kind of grunts and groans and has human capability. He can fly a plane. You know, so, that is ridiculous mathematically. Anyway. Back to my scenario to get, it, to get it more specific. The grandson becomes contemporary with his grandparents. That's the premise. So that means the same age at the same time. And the grandson obviously accomplishes this by traveling through time. He has exited his future time and has entered the past, which is where his grandparents are. So far, we've got that. I hope you do. Anyway, the grandparents then, being supposed scientists, conclude that the contemporary existence of their grandson is evidentiary. What do I mean by that? It's proof that they survive. They have a grandson. So, therefore, they are surviving. So, if they, what can they do now because the grandson is there? And as long as he's existing, they're beginning to say, we're unkillable. <clears throat> That's what the, the geniuses that wrote all of this have put in front of me, or you. In other words, as long as the grandson is dis- demonstrating contemporary physical presence or existence, then the grandparents are assured of their own enduringness. In more other words, if the grandson were to suddenly vanish, what does that mean for the grandparents? One of the grandparents must have been killed by the aliens. Are you with me so far? Is anybody still awake? No. (laughs) Obviously, it's nonsensical. It's drivel. It's inane. It's stupid. Tell me what you really think. For the purposes of furthering the discussion, I'm going to be gracious and allow the ridiculous possibility that the grandson can venture back into time and become synchronous attendant with his grandparents before the birth of his mother or father, which precedes, obviously, his own birth. So, let's go with that just for fun and see what we can say about it. If it were possible for that to happen, and it is not possible, because to do so requires that information to be dis- to be destroyed, and information cannot be destroyed, and it cannot be replaced by different or distinct information. So that's just how you start. Let's go ahead and keep going and ask some more few a few more obvious questions. Is the grandson's existence? Now dependent on the free will of either grandparent. Does that make sense? Let me take it to another place. You you see, can a grandparent annihilate the grandson by killing the other grandparent? How come that's never the scenario that we get to watch? Suppose the grandparents shoot each other. Does the grandson cease to exist? Now remember, they're all there together. They're, he is there. Corresponding, There's correspondence between the three beings. Try it this way. The grandson is existing with the grandparents before his birth. Can the grandparents effectuate his extinguishment? Can they choose to blot him out? Notice the phrase that I used. If the grandson decides to kill the grandparents before the grandparent kills another grandparent... Can the grandson kill his grandparents before his own birth? And if he does that, does he negate his own existence? Can he destroy all of the information that is compiled inside of him by killing one of his or both of his grandparents? Assuming there's no petri dish for in vitro fertilization. There's no... What I used to call uh, uh, pregnancy by by veterinarian. People thought that was unsympathetic. And remember, conservation of information or energy is a fundamental axiom of science. Once more, unsurprisingly, Hollywood doesn't know this. Or they do know it, and they're intentionally obfuscating it, which I think is the more likely Why would they do that? Conservation of information or energy is the first law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Is it possible to, therefore, end the existence of someone else? No, it's not. Existence is inviolable. It cannot be ended. Existence is inviolable because Jesus Christ says so, and he is the God of truth, the God of the Amen. Existence comes from God. Humans are not objects. We are not objects. Humans are living beings with consciousness. Can the consciousness be blotted out? Can consciousness, which is non-physical, be blotted out? Can it be removed from existence? Can a human being do that to another human being? That's ultimately the question that has been raised by this particular episode. Again, notice this blotted out that I'm using on purpose. Moses asked to be blotted out, Exodus 32, 31 through 32. Let me read it here. Now, it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. That's the golden cattle, isn't it? The golden calf. How is this a great sin? But it is. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He's acting as the mediator. He's a picture of Christ. Deuteronomy 18.15, isn't he? The prophet... Like unto Moses. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed such great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Moses sought to substitute himself for the nation of Israel. And Paul said a similar thing, Romans 9, 2. He said, I I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, the Jews. It's almost identical, if not identical. So Exodus 32, 31 through 32, and Romans 9, 1 through 5. Those are the same. They're, they're together. Old Testament and New Testament complementing. The book of Moses, the book, I'm oh, sorry, the book that Moses refers to, blot me out of your book which you have written, that refers to the Lamb's book of life, which is Revelation 13, 8, and Revelation 20, 14 through 15. Those who are not written into Christ's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And obviously at Exodus thirty two, thirty one through thirty two, Moses is speaking to Christ. The I am of Exodus three fourteen is the one who writes the names in the book. The Lord on Mount Sinai is the one who writes the names. The one who writes the names in Revelation is Christ. Jesus Christ is the I am of Exodus 3.14 and of John 8.24. He says, you have to believe that I am the I am or you will perish in your sins. And there it is in Exodus 32, 31 through 32. The point is, yea, a point. Christ is the one who writes the names of the saved into his book. So what am I saying about the grandson? Is he in the book? Palms. uh, Palms. Palms. Psalms. 69.28 adds more information. (laughs) Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not written with the saved or the righteous. David wants his enemies to be blotted out of the book of living. So I have two books now, but he also says "And not written with the book of the righteous or the saved. So I have the book of the living and the Lamb's book of life. There's two books here now to talk about. There's more than two books, but note the difference. Define blotted out. What happens if your name is blotted out? Of the book of the living. Can you be blotted out of the book of the Lamb's, uh, I'm sorry, can you be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life? If Christ writes it down, does he have an eraser? Oh, I made a mistake. You see your eternal security doctrine here? Many people believe that you have the ability to grab the the implement, the writing system from Christ and erase your name from his book. He writes it, you erase it. Do I need to keep going? That is so indefensibly. What's the word we're looking for here? Stupid? No. That's probably disrespectful. I have to get back to you and see if I can come up with a synonym. I have to get the thesaurus and find a word for stupid that will not be disrespectful. So far, all I can come up with is stupid. I'll keep working on it as the lecture goes by. You cannot erase your name. God writes your name into his book of life. You're not going to erase it. Is that an excuse to go sinning? Uh, No, it is not. But I want to point out that blotting out is not extinguishment. It is the second death. Described in Revelation. Not written is also not extinguishment or annihilation. Not written means that you are not written into the Lamb's book of salvation. Moses and Paul were both voicing the impossible. Something they knew was impossible. Christ will not allow them to become unsaved. They cannot take the place of an unsaved person. Nonetheless, their desire to save Israel at that cost, the ultimate cost, is something both would choose to do if it were necessary and possible. It is neither necessary and it is not possible. So now ask the most obvious question of the most obvious questions. From where? What is the source, the origin of existence? You all know this. What is the breath of life, the consciousness, the mind, the soul, the spirit? Where does it come from and what is it made of? From whom does the spirit, the living soul, the living beingness, if you will... From whom does this come? Who gives life? Can it be dissolved? Can a living soul disintegrate into nothingness? That is ultimately the question that was in this little goofy Hollywood production that I watched. Obviously not true, so why do they say it? Because you want your children to think so. They want you to think so. And you all know the answer to all those questions I just asked. The gift of existence is something that God bestows. However, do not confuse salvation or life as God defines life, as it is used in the phrase Lamb's Book of Life, with existence. It's of utmost importance that Christians have grasps on these kinds of things. Let me explain it this way. I have, there is a gift of existence, and then there is a gift of salvation. You have existence because it's given to you, but your destiny is to be determined. God defines life not as existence, but as salvation. Reconciled to him. That's life as he defines it. I've tried to tell you, get the right understanding of life and death as you read the Bible. It will help you a great deal. Christians should have this firmly, and when they see this kind of stuff come flying at them, they're not confused by it. And I would recommend that you rant and rave at the TV set, which I find therapeutic, as I said. I recommend it. I know that most of you do that. How do I know that? Because you, yeah, you know, some of you turn it off, which is the ultimate ranting and raving. But I believe that I can communicate with these people, so I by yelling louder. And I know most of you, yeah, it's true, absolutely it is. I know most of you do this because you come here, and that is evidenti evidence that that is the case. Evidenti, is that Italian? Good grief! I was out partying last night at my birthday. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's taking its toll. I went home at 7:30 cuz I'm I'm the life of the party. <laughs> oh my gosh. What has happened to me? What is happening to me? <laughs> I also think Christians fail because they don't have this understanding of the origin of life. They don't know where the or- they don't know the origins. They- you have to know the origin. The source, the source of consciousness, of will, of existence, spiritual reality, time, my personal favorite, energy, matter, gravity. Where does gravity come from? Where does energy come from? Space. Where does space come from? What's the origin of, phys- of the physical reality? What's the origin of sin? What's the origin of death? What's the origin of mathematics? What's the origin of language? The church used to have these firmly. Firmly. And now we're idiots. It's gone. As the Bible said, it would. But once you know the origins, once the origins are known, then the church should move to the wise. You can know what you can. But now you have to know why. Why is there life? What is life? What's the meaning of it? What's the purpose? Why is there death? Why does God create? What is creation? What is life? What is death? All of those kinds of things. To be able to answer these questions beyond the, the simple, the cursory, the shallow. I submitted. It, it's a critically valuable asset. It's a capability. It's a lost art now, if you will. You must, as parents, I'm looking around last night, I was with all these young people that I knew from when they were 12. They're now 40. or so they look it. Okay. We looked a lot better when we were their age. Yes, we did. Because <laughs> we were starving. <laughs> That's part of it. <laughs> and we ate liver. It almost killed us all. Anyway. You have children, and your children need to know that you know the origins of these, and you know why. Not just what. What? You have to be able to explain it to them because they're being bombarded by the atheistic system. Uh, it's beyond valuable. It's, it's extraordinarily critical. And it's quite rare for humanity in our time, especially in this country that we are in, but it's rare nonetheless in all of, of humanity, frankly, to ponder deeply the great mysteries we, and include myself because it's happened in my lifetime, we're now in this country the generation of video, video games um, and eating laundry detergent. And that's what we're doing. And we're staring in, in, uh, endlessly at computer screens displaying cats. Thinking and thoughtfulness is all, it's, it's just gone. It's replaced by mindless, useless Vanity, attention-seeking, look at me, craving attention from people who, one, don't even like you or know you and are lying to you. And you want that attention without merit, without accomplishment. That is it, to give your children attention that is undeserved. They go 0 for 4 in a softball game. You say, hey, what we need to do is work on that, that, uh, that swing path. You don't say they did something fantastic when they have not. This is everyone gets a trophy and a, and a snack. Uh, that is doing a disservice to them. You will turn them into an attention fool. And hopefully you have noticed that I am returning to Ecclesiastes 3.1 now. All of that to get you back to Ecclesiastes 3. Time and death. A time to be born and a time to die. Solomon, the Holy Spirit selects Solomon to explain the incredible enigma that is time. Time, understanding it, is a precious thing. You Don't let somebody attack it. Don't allow your children to, know, or to not know it's being attacked. Don't allow yourself to, to disregard the attacks. Solomon explains it in Ecclesiastes 3. It's an incredible enigma, as I said. And we, right now, are immersed in time and space. Yet neither of those can be fully defined. What is the purposes of time? Make a list of the purposes. We're inside of time. How many purposes do you think it has? What is the first thing that you would think that time does? See, that's the why is there time question. Do you know who installed or instituted time? Yes, you do. It's in your Bible. Now ask, why did he do it? What's its purpose? Its fundamental, foremost purpose. Give me one. Test on Friday. Turn your papers in. Isaac Newton wrestled with this. Every scientist is wrestling with time. Philosophers, theologians. But Isaac Newton fought with time and space and ultimately decided. Let me just go back a second. Time has an ending, sort of, maybe. It may not have its own ending, but that's up to God. And I'm sure that it's going to continue. But it does end something. What does is, remember I started all this out that there's a relationship with, between time and death. Critical that you know the relationship in my view. And let me keep going. Isaac Newton struggled with time and space, and ultimately decided that they are facets, the characteristics of the objective reality. That's a bunch of long words, maybe, but you'll get it eventually. In other words, he's saying they have independence. Whereas others countered, proposing that time exists only in the human mind. There's a difference. Isaac Newton says time operates independent. There will be time. It will keep moving. It is on its own. It has uh, um, it has aspects to it. But the the debate is is that no time exists only in the human mind, or it, it is consciousness dependent. In other words, consciousness must. Be in place. Everything, George Berkeley, is dependent on perception. But they're saying that time is only in the human mind. Time is constructed in us, by us, and we're using it as a tool, as an accounting device to measure, to bring awareness and understanding to all the material changes that are going on around us. I am moving the pen around. You are interpreting what I'm doing by noticing the duration in which I do it. I'm writing on the board. You're turning around looking at the green clock. It used to show up on the board. Does the green clock show up on the board anymore? I used to get a couple of letters about the green clock. I should, we should articulate it so it does. Does it show up on me? Is it in my glasses? I see your warning that I'm deviating. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, Terithithi wakes up every 15 minutes, whether she has to or not, to let me know how much trouble I'm in. For that, she gets my unfettered gratitude. So you have two views. Newton, time is an independent quality or quantity, whatever it is. The other view, no, it's just, a, uh, it is just a, a device that is inside the human mind. It's constructed by us and it brings understanding to the world that we are immersed in. Newton saw an absolute mathematical time. In other words, he's arguing for time's reality. The other says, no, time is not real. And Newton is saying that time possesses its own nature. Time has a flow and it's not attached to any external influence. Einstein saw, no, he said, time's an illusion. There's no distinction between past, present and future. Who's right? The point being, yea, another point. The scientists, the theologians, the philosophers have recognized this amazing mystery and they've long known that it's indescribable. Where's the answer to these kinds of questions? Newton saw the reality as requiring an absolute observer, an absolute consciousness, an absolute observation, if you will. He thought if there were an absolute nature to observation or consciousness, that solves the That solves the time issue. Because somebody who had absolute observation would be able to know what time it is. He would know the true time. And mankind, us, we can't know that. We can't see everything. We don't know very much at all. And all we can do with time is to have a relative understanding. So we have relative time. In Alaska, the time is different We have time zones. We have individual timing, understanding. And Plato said, no, time proceeds from the sun and the moon and the planets. Their movements cause time. And everyone agrees that time and motion are intrinsic, but this only results in more problems. If you say that motion causes time, what's the next question from your two-year-old? What caused motion? Right? Turtles all the way down. Where did motion come from? What caused motion? Put that on your paper. What causes motion? Where did motion come from? Who decided we should have motion? Plato eventually concluded that if all motion were to cease, the time would cease. Is he right? Newton said no. Time's independent. Now, return to Genesis 1, 17 and 19. God set them, I mean, then, I'll go to 16. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and rule over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. God set them in motion to rule the daytime and the nighttime. God saw that it was good evening and morning. That's Hebrew time reckoning. The fourth day. The Hebrews reckon time from the evening to the morning, not the morning to the evening. Notice that God is placing the awareness of time onto his fourth day. Now, he did it in the first day, in the beginning. But he puts the awareness of time on the fourth day. He builds this timepiece, is what he's done. But the timepiece is not time. What is the timepiece doing? It's exposing. It's revealing. Very good. It is revealing time. It's not the creation of time. It is the revealing of time. So time to repeat is not physical. Time has no spatiality. Time cannot be gathered up and placed into a box with a cat. It's very funny. Thanks both of you for laughing. The internet will love that joke. The three people that see this video. Just a really quick aside. What is space? If I remove all the particles from space, what remains of space? Feel free to answer. We will not make fun of you. Most people would say that if I remove all the particles from space, and again, what is space? If I remove all the particles, then nothing remains. What does your two-year-old now ask? What is nothing? Right? Here we go. Turtles on top of turtles. Where did nothing come from? What is the origin of nothing? Why do we have nothing? Do we need nothing? (laughs) What if all we had was something? What's the value of nothing? What is the purpose of nothing? What is the pur- purpose of somethings? Instead of space-time, Minkowski said space-time, I have my own, I, have, I call it nothing-time. Because space is nothing. I'm, I know, I need to rush to the copyright office. Minkowski, though, to give him some credit, realized the connection of, how how benevolent of me, huh? Uh, Realized the connection of nothingness and time, and he called it space-time. Nothingness or space and time are not objects. They're not physical properties, which again raises the alternative. If they're not physical properties, then what are they? If you don't have a physical property, what must you then have? You must have a mental property. And if it is a mental property, then it is consciousness. And so whose consciousness is it? And now you have Newton, right? Understand how he got there, right? For what purposes were space and time installed by this mental property, this consciousness? And finally, and that is the favorite uttered word here at Cliffside, we go back to Ecclesiastes which Solomon solved this. This is an incredible person. He has the Holy Spirit. He prayed for wisdom, right? And he got it. He was incredible. Uh, Let me find it here. Here we go. This is to everything. There is a duration for every time, every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. We're going to skip that part today. We'll go right to verse 9 through 15. What profit has the worker from in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful, it says in my translation, in its time. So he has put everything inside of time. In its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts. That's more time. Except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their, and good by the way, oh gosh, having a bad day. One of those don't count. I just thought it, as you know. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to find satisfaction, that is the actual literal word there, in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. How does Solomon know this? He's just not throwing it out. He knows it and he proves that he knows it nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it let me repeat that i know that whatever god does it shall be forever nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it how does he know that no one can find out the work that god does from the beginning of time to the end of time why not why can't you know what god does why can't you know what the work god it did no one he says not me he says Why can't you know it? Ask the questions. Why? How much work did God do? Then Solomon writes, nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. The law of conservation of energy. There it is. Information theory. The fundamental, the axiom. Energy can be converted but never lost. Again, the first law of thermodynamics. Right there in Ecclesiastes. This is one lucky king. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Information cannot be destroyed. This is so. It is an established fact. Why is this so? Who made it so? Why did he make it so? Why did this... God this consciousness this ultimate absolute consciousness why did he make it so that information cannot be destroyed why did he make it so that these stupid time traveler i keep saying the word stupid i'm going to get in trouble i'm not supposed to say stupid over and over and over again but why did he make it so that these inane time traveler shows are so inane because he did Why did he do that? Let me ask you a question. Can the lake of fire destroy consciousness? Let me read it again. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. Can a time traveler take from the work of God? He cannot. Can he travel through time? No. It's ridiculous. But yet, what do we do? That's right. We watch the shows. You can watch the shows. I give you permission to watch the shows as long as you hate them. (laughs) It's not a whole lot different than other things I've tried to make you hate. (laughs) Okay. Let's rise and be this next.